Part First, Chapter Two, Section B of The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matt Messerschmidt in Ann Arbor, Michigan, USA. The Moderns. Continuation of Subdivision 2. The Possessed. Piety has for a century received so many blows, and had to hear its superhuman essence reviled as an inhuman one so often, that one cannot feel tempted to draw the sword against it again. And yet, it has almost always been only moral opponents that have appeared in the arena to assail the supreme essence in favor of another supreme essence. So Proudhon, unabashed, says, Man is destined to live without religion, but the moral law is eternal and absolute. Who would dare today to attack morality? Moral people skimmed off the best fat from religion, ate it themselves, and are now having a tough job to get rid of the resulting scrofola. If, therefore, we point out that religion has not by any means been hurt in its inmost part, so long as people reproach it only with its superhuman essence, and that it takes its final appeal to the spirit alone, for God is spirit, then we have sufficiently indicated its final accord with morality, and can leave its stubborn conflict with the latter lying behind us. It is a question of a supreme essence with both, and whether this is a superhuman or a human one can make, since it is any case an essence over me, a supermine one, so to speak, but little difference to me. In the end, the relation to the human essence, or to man, as soon as ever it has shed the snakeskin of the old religion, will yet wear a religious snakeskin again. So Feuerbach instructs us that, if one only inverts speculative philosophy, always makes the predicate the subject, and so makes the subject the object and principle, one has the undraped truth pure and clean. Herewith, to be sure, we lost the narrow religious standpoint, lost the God, who from this standpoint is subject. But we take in exchange for it the other side of the religious standpoint, the moral standpoint. Thus we no longer say, God is love, but love is divine. If we further put in place of the predicate divine, the equivalent sacred, then, as far as concerns the sense, all the old comes back again. According to this, love is to be the good in man, his divineness, that which does him honor, his true humanity. It makes him man for the first time makes for the first time a man out of him. So then it would be more accurately worded thus, love is what is human in man, and what is inhuman is the loveless egoist. 
but precisely all that which Christianity and with it speculative philosophy, i.e. theology, offers as the good, the absolute, is to self-ownership simply not the good, or, what means the same, it is only the good. Consequently, by the transformation of the predicate into the subject, the Christian essence, and with it the predicate that contains the essence, you know, would only be fixed yet more oppressively. God and the divine would entwine themselves all the more inextricably with me. To expel God from his heaven, and to rob him of his transcendence, cannot yet support a claim of complete victory, if therein he is only chased into the human breast and gifted with indelible imminence. Now, they say, the divine is the truly human. The same people who oppose Christianity as the basis of the state, who oppose the so-called Christian state, do not tire of repeating that morality is the fundamental pillar of social life and of the state. As if the dominion of morality were not a complete dominion of the sacred, a hierarchy. So we may here mention, by the way, that rationalist movement which, after theologians had long insisted that only faith was capable of grasping religious truths, that only to believers did God reveal himself, and that therefore only the heart, the feelings, the believing fancy was religious, broke out with the assertion that the natural understanding, human reason, was also capable of discerning God. What does that mean but that the reason laid claim to be the same visionary as the fancy? In this sense, Romarus wrote his most notable truths of natural religion. It had to come to this, that the whole man, with all his faculties, was found to be religious, heart and affections, understanding and reason, feeling knowledge, and will. In short, everything in man appeared religious. Hegel has shown that even philosophy is religious. And what is not called religion today? The religion of love, the religion of freedom, political religion. In short, every enthusiasm. And so it is, too, in fact. To this day we use the romance word religion which expresses the concept of a condition of being bound. To be sure, we remain bound, so far as religion takes possession of our inward parts. But is the mind also bound? On the contrary, that is free, is sole lord, is not our mind, but absolute. Therefore, the correct affirmative translation of the word religion would be freedom of mind. In whomsoever the mind is free, he is religious in just the same way as he in whom the senses have free course is called a sensual man. The mind binds the former, that desires the latter. Religion, therefore, is boundless or religio with reference to me. I am bound. It is freedom with reference to the mind. 
the mind is free or has freedom of mind. Many know from experience how hard it is on us when the desires run away with us, free and unbridled, but that the free mind, splendid intellectuality, enthusiasm for intellectual interests, or however this jewel may in the most various phrase be named, brings us into yet more grievous straits than even the wildest impropriety. People will not perceive, nor can they perceive it without being consciously egoists. Rimerous, and all who have shown that our reason, our heart, etc., also lead to God, have therewithal shown that we are possessed through and through. To be sure, they vexed the theologians, from whom they took away the prerogative of religious exaltation. But for religion, for freedom of mind, they thereby conquered yet more ground. For, when the mind is no longer limited to feeling or faith, but also, as understanding, reason, and thought in general, belongs to itself the mind. When, therefore, it may take part in the spiritual and heavenly truths in the form of understanding, as well as in its other forms, then the whole mind is occupied only with spiritual things, that is, with itself, and is therefore free. Now we are so through and through religious that jurors, sworn men, condemn us to death, and every policeman, as a good Christian, takes us to the lockup by virtue of an oath of office. Morality could not come into opposition with piety till after the time when, in general, the boisterous hate of everything that looked like an order, decrees, commandments, etc., spoke out in revolt and the personal absolute lord was scoffed at and persecuted. Consequently, it could arrive at independence only through liberalism, whose first form acquired significance in the world's history as citizenship, and weakened the specifically religious powers. See liberalism below. For, when morality not merely goes alongside of piety, but stands on feet of its own, then its principle lies no longer in the divine commandments, but in the law of reason, from which the commandments, so far as they are still to remain valid, must first await justification for their validity. In the law of reason, man determines himself out of himself. For man is rational, and out of the essence of man, those laws follow of necessity. Piety and morality part company in this, that the former makes God the lawgiver, the latter man. From a certain standpoint of morality, people reason about as follows. Either man is led by his sensuality and is, following it, immoral, or he is led by the good, which, taken up into will, is called moral sentiment sentiment and prepossession in favor of the good. Then he shows himself moral. From this point of view, how, for instance, can Sand's act against Kotzebue be called immoral? What is commonly understood by unselfish, it certainly was, in the same measure as, among other things, St. Crispin's 
thieveries in favor of the poor. Ye should not have murdered, for it stands written, Thou shalt not murder. Then to serve the good, the welfare of the people, as Sand at least intended, or the welfare of the poor, like Crispin, is moral. But murder and theft are immoral, the purpose moral, the means immoral. Why? Because murder, assassination, is something absolutely bad. When the guerrillas enticed the enemies of the country into ravines and shot them down unseen from the bushes, do you suppose that was assassination? According to the principle of morality, which commands us to serve the good, you could really ask only whether murder could never in any case be a realization of the good, and would have to endorse that murder which realized the good. You cannot condemn Sand's deed at all. It was moral, because in the service of the good, because unselfish. It was an act of punishment, which the individual inflicted, an execution inflicted at the risk of the executioner's life. What else had his scheme been, after all, but that he wanted to suppress writings by brute force? Are you not acquainted with the same procedure as a legal and sanctioned one? And what can be objected against it from your principle of morality? But it was an illegal execution. So the immoral thing in it was the illegality, the disobedience to law? Then you admit that the good is nothing else than law, morality, nothing else than loyalty. And to this externality of loyalty, your morality must sink. To this righteousness of works in the fulfillment of the law. Only that the latter is at once more tyrannical and more revolting than the old-time righteousness of works. For in the latter, only to act is needed. But you require the disposition to. One must carry in himself the law, the statute. And he who is most legally disposed is the most moral. Even the last vestige of cheerfulness in Catholic life must perish in this Protestant legality. Here at last, the domination of the law is for the first time complete. Not I live, but the law lives in me. Thus I have really come so far to be only the vessel of its glory. Every Prussian carries his gendarme in his breast, says a high Prussian officer. Why do certain opposition parties fail to flourish? Solely for the reason that they refuse to forsake the path of morality or legality. Hence the measureless hypocrisy of devotion, love, etc., from whose repulsiveness one may daily get the most thrown at this rotten and hypocritical relation of a lawful opposition. In the moral relation of love and fidelity, a divided or opposed will cannot have place. The beautiful relation is disturbed, if the one wills this and the other the reverse. But now, according to the practice hitherto, and the old prejudice of the opposition, the moral relation is to be preserved above all.
What is then left to the opposition? Perhaps the will to have a liberty, if the beloved one sees fit to deny it? Not a bit. It may not will to have the freedom. It can only wish for it, petition for it, lisp a please, please. What would come of it if the opposition really willed, willed with the full energy of the will? No, it must renounce will in order to live to love, renounce liberty for love of morality. It may never claim as a right what it is permitted only to beg as a favor. Love, devotion, etc. demand with undeviating definiteness that there be only one will to which the others devote themselves, which they serve, follow, love. Whether this will is regarded as reasonable or as unreasonable, in both cases one acts morally when one follows it and immorally when one breaks away from it. The will that commands the censorship seems to many unreasonable, but he who in a land of censorship evades the censoring of his book acts immorally, and he who submits it to the censorship acts morally. If someone let his moral judgment go and set up a secret press, one would have to call him immoral and imprudent in the bargain if he let himself be caught. But will such a man lay claim to a value in the eyes of the moral? Perhaps, that is, if he fancied he was serving a higher morality. The web of the hypocrisy of today hangs on the frontiers of two domains, between which our time swings back and forth, attaching its fine threads of deception and self-deception. No longer vigorous enough to serve morality without doubt or weakening. Not yet reckless enough to live wholly to egoism. It trembles now toward the one and now toward the other in the spider web of hypocrisy and, crippled by the curse of halfness, catches only miserable, stupid flies. If one has dared to make a free motion Immediately one waters it again with assurances of love and shams resignation. If, on the other hand, they have had the face to reject the free motion with moral appeals to confidence, immediately the moral courage also sinks, and they assure one how they hear the free words with special pleasure. They sham approval. In short, People would like to have the one, but not go without the other. They would like to have a free will, but not for their lives lack the moral will. Just come into contact with a servile loyalist, you liberals. You will sweeten every word of freedom with a look of the most loyal confidence, and he will clothe his servilism in the most flattering phrases of freedom. Then you go apart, and he, like you, thinks I know you, Fox. He sends the devil in you as much as you do the dark old Lord God in him. A Nero is a bad man only in the eyes of the good. In mind, he is nothing but a possessed man, 
as are the good too. The good see in him an arch-villain, and relegate him to hell. Why did nothing hinder him in his arbitrary course? Why did people put up with so much? Do you suppose the tame Romans, who let all their will be bound by such a tyrant, were a hair the better? In old Rome they would have put him to death instantly, never would have been his slaves. But the contemporary good among the Romans opposed to him only moral demands, not their will. They sighed that their emperor did not do homage to morality like them. They themselves remained moral subjects, till at last one found courage to give up moral obedient subjection. And then the same good Romans, who, as obedient subjects, had borne all the ignominy of having no will, hurrahed over the nefarious, immoral act of the rebel. Where, then, in the good, was the courage for the revolution, that courage which they now praised, after another had mustered it up? The good could not have this courage, for a revolution and an insurrection into the bargain is always something immoral, which one can resolve upon only when one ceases to be good and becomes either bad or neither of the two. Nero was no viler than his time, in which one could only be one of the two, good or bad. The judgment of his time on him had to be that he was bad, and this in the highest degree, not a milksop, but an arch-scoundrel. All moral people can pronounce only this judgment on him. Rascals such as he was are still living here and there today. See, for example, the memoirs of Ritter von Lange in the midst of the moral. It is not convenient to live among them, certainly, as one is not sure of his life for a moment. But can you say that it is more convenient to live among the moral? One is just as little sure of his life there, only that one is hanged in the way of justice. But least of all is one sure of his honor, and the national cockade is gone before you can say Jack Robinson. The hard fist of morality treats the noble nature of egoism altogether without compassion. But surely one cannot put a rascal and an honest man on the same level. Now, no human being does that oftener than you judges of morals. Yes, still more than that, you imprison as a criminal an honest man who speaks openly against the existing constitution, against the hallowed institutions, and you entrust portfolios and still more important things to a crafty rascal. So in proxy, you have nothing to reproach me with, but in theory. Now there I do put both on the same level, as two opposite poles, to wit, both on the level of the moral law. Both have meaning only in the moral world, just as in the pre-Christian time, a Jew who kept the law and one who broke it had meaning and significance only in respect to the Jewish law. Before Jesus Christ, on the contrary, the Pharisee was no more than the sinner and publican.
So before self-ownership, the moral Pharisee amounts to as much as the immoral sinner. Nero became very inconvenient by his possessiveness, but a self-owning man would not silly oppose to him the sacred and whine if the tyrant does not regard the sacred. He would oppose to him his will. How often the sacredness of the inalienable rights of man has been held up to their foes, and some liberty or other shown and demonstrated to be a sacred right of man. Those who do that deserve to be laughed out of court, as they actually are, were it not that in truth they do, even though unconsciously, take the road that leads to the goal. They have a presentiment that, if only the majority is once won for that liberty, it will also will the liberty, and will then take what it will have. The sacredness of the liberty, and all possible proofs of this sacredness, will never procure it. Lamenting and petitioning only shows beggars. The moral man is necessarily narrow in that he knows no other enemy than the immoral man. He who is not moral is immoral, and accordingly reprobate, despicable, etc. Therefore, the moral man can never comprehend the egoist. Is not unwedded cohabitation an immorality? The moral man may turn as he pleases. He will have to stand by this verdict. Amelia Galati gave up her life for this moral truth. And it is true. It is an immorality. A virtuous girl may become an old maid. A virtuous man may pass the time in fighting his natural impulses until he has perhaps dulled them. He may castrate himself for the sake of virtue, as St. Origen did for the sake of heaven. He thereby honors sacred wedlock, sacred chastity, as inviolable. He is moral. Unchastity can never become a moral act. However indulgently the moral man may judge and excuse him who committed it, it remains a transgression, a sin against a moral commandment. There clings to it an indelible stain. As chastity once belonged to the monastic vow, so it does to moral conduct. Chastity is a good. For the egoist, on the contrary, even chastity is not a good without which he could not get along. He cares nothing at all about it. What now follows from this for the judgment of the moral man? This, that he throws the egoist into the only class of men that he knows besides moral men, into that of the immoral. He cannot do otherwise. He must find the egoist immoral in everything in which the egoist disregards morality. If he did not find him so, then he would already have become an apostate from morality without confessing it to himself. He would already no longer be a truly moral man. One should not let himself be led astray by such phenomena, which at the present day are certainly no longer to be classed as rare but should reflect that he who yields any point of morality can as little be counted among the truly moral as Lessing was a pious Christian when, 
in the well-known parable, he compared the Christian religion, as well as the Mohammedan and Jewish, to a counterfeit ring. Often people are already further than they venture to confess to themselves. For Socrates, because in culture he stood on the level of morality, it would have been an immorality if he had been willing to follow Credo's seductive indictment and escape from the dungeon. To remain was the only moral thing. But it was solely because Socrates was a moral man. The unprincipled, sacrilegious men of the revolution, on the contrary, had sworn fidelity to Louis XVI and decreed his deposition, yes, his death. But the act was an immoral one, at which moral persons will be horrified to all eternity. Yet all this applies, more or less, only to civic morality, on which the freer look down with contempt. For it, like civism, its native ground, in general, is still too little removed and free from the religious heaven not to transplant the latter's laws without criticism or further consideration to its domain, instead of producing independent doctrines of its own. Morality cuts quite a different figure when it arrives at the consciousness of its dignity and raises its principle, the essence of man, or man with a capital M, to be the only regulative power. Those who have worked their way through to such a decided consciousness break entirely with religion, whose God no longer finds any place alongside their man, and, as they see below, themselves scuttle the ship of state. So too they crumble away that morality which flourishes only in the state, and logically have no right to use even its name any further. For what this critical party calls morality is very positively distinguished from the so-called civic or political morality, and must appear to the citizen like an insensate and unbridled liberty. But at bottom it has only the advantage of the purity of the principle, which, freed from its defilement with the religious, has now reached universal power in its clarified definiteness as humanity. Therefore one should not wonder that the name morality is retained along with others like freedom, benevolence, self-consciousness, and is only garnered now and then with the addition a free morality, just as, though the civic state is abused, yet the state is to arise again as a free state, or if not even so, yet as a free society. Because this morality completed into humanity has fully settled its accounts with the religion out of which it historically came forth, nothing hinders it from becoming a religion on its own account. For a distinction prevails between religion and morality only so long as our dealings with the world of men are regulated and hallowed by our relation to a superhuman being, or so long as our doing is a doing for God's sake. If, on the other hand, it comes to the point that man is to man the supreme being, then that distinction vanishes 
and morality, being removed from its subordinate position, is completed into religion. For then, the higher being, who had hitherto been subordinated to the highest, man, has ascended to absolute height, and we are related to him as one is related to the highest being, religiously. Morality and piety are now as synonymous as in the beginning of Christianity, and it is only because the supreme being has come to be a different one that a holy walk is no longer called a holy one, but a human one. If morality has conquered, then a complete change of masters has taken place. After the annihilation of faith, Feuerbach thinks to put into the supposedly safe harbor of love. The first and highest law must be the love of man to man. Homo homini deus est. This is the supreme practical maxim. This is the turning point of the world's history. But, properly speaking, only the God is changed. The Deus. Love has remained. There loved the superhuman God. Here love to the human God. To Homo as Deus. Therefore man is to me sacred. And everything truly human is to me sacred. Marriage is sacred of itself. And so it is with all moral relations. Friendship is and must be sacred for you and property and marriage and the good of every man, but sacred in and of itself. Haven't we the priest again there? Who is his God? Man with a great M. What is the divine, the human? Then the predicate has indeed only been changed into the subject. And instead of the sentence, God is love, they say, love is divine. Instead of God has become man, man has become God, etc. It is nothing more or less than a new religion. All moral relations are ethical, are cultivated with a moral mind, only where of themselves, without religious consecration by the priest's blessing, they are counted religious. Feuerbach's proposition, theology is anthropology, means only religion must be ethics, ethics alone is religion. Altogether, Feuerbach accomplishes only a transposition of subject and predicate, a giving of preference to the latter. But since he himself says, love is not and has never been considered by men sacred through being a predicate of God, but it is a predicate of God because it is divine in and of itself, he might judge that the fight against the predicates themselves, against love and all sanctities, must be commenced. How could he hope to turn men away from God when he left them the divine. And if, as Feuerbach says, 
God himself has never been the main thing to them, but only his predicates. Then he might have gone on, leaving them the tinsel longer yet, since the doll, the real colonel, was left at any rate. He recognizes, too, that with him it is only a matter of annihilating an illusion. He thinks, however, that the effect of the illusion on men is downright ruinous, since even love, in itself the truest, most inward sentiment, becomes an obscure, illusory one through religiousness, since religious love loves man only for God's sake therefore loves man only apparently, but in truth, God only. Is this different with moral love? Does it love the man, this man, for this man's sake, or for morality's sake? And so, for homo homini deus, for God's sake? End of section.